Good morning. In the early hours of Wednesday morning, the death of Shane McGowan. Let's start with the music. Good Morning Ireland yesterday and so many magical songs. Just after the news broke, Claire spoke to Stuart Clark of Hot Press. I'm in a state of shock, obviously very upset, but I think back to that 60th birthday gig for Shane in the National Concert Hall. Everybody there, like Johnny Depp, Nick was there, the president, and I'm really glad he had a night where all these people came together and he must have known how much he was loved and respected. And, of course, back on the radio every five minutes now with the fairy tale of New York, his contribution to Irish culture is off the scale. And over the last few days, so many, many tributes to Shane McGowan. His songwriting, that voice, pure genius. With Sean on Arena, music journalist John Marr. What a craftsman he was when it came to songwriting and particularly to song lyrics, John. He was an extraordinary lyricist. I mean, so many of his greatest songs stand alone as poetry. When you strip away the music and you simply look at the words, they are so beautiful. It shouldn't be a surprise, Sean, because this was a man who was reading James Joyce while in primary school. He was super intelligent, incredibly curious about the world. He always had a poetic turn of phrase. And songs like A Rainy Night in Soho uh, are master classes in lyric writing. And he was uh, aided and abetted by a bunch of remarkable musicians who were able to execute what was going on in his head. And those songs will last forever. 
Born on Christmas Day in 1957, Shane McGowan grew up in a middle-class area in Kent and went to private school. And as almost every contributor on the radio noted, he was a gifted writer. As his biographer Richard Balls told Arena, one of Shane's teachers was so impressed with his talent that he kept those early writings. So he came from this uh, this incredibly literate family, but what is just even more extraordinary is that, as you say, he was re- reading Dostoevsky, uh, D.H. Lawrence, Graham Greene, uh, James Joyce in primary school. You know, he he would come back from holidays and they'd, they'd make the children sit down and, and write uh, the reading list that they'd had over the summer. You can imagine <laughs> mo- most 10-year-old boys in England wouldn't have been writing, reading Ulysses on their, on their summer holiday. Absolutely curious about the world, fascinated by news. I mean, he just absolutely soaked up news that was going on in America, things that were happening on, in Northern Ireland, everywhere. You know, he was just, just mm. fascinated by information, really. Uh, massive historian. And the teacher, as you say, uh, who I tracked down, he had actually kept these books. He hadn't done that for any other students, only Shane. He fell headlong into the punk scene, creativity and anarchy. With Ray, B.P. Fallon, who recalled seeing the Pogues in those very, very early days. My friend Frank Murray, God bless him. Delays, yeah. uh, he, he was working with Phil Linnett and he was a chum of mine for years. Uh, and he told me about this band he was managing and would I come and see them in Carlo. Uh, and then he told me that Elvis Costello was interested in producing them, which was a, an added candle. Mm. So Dan, I went to Carlo and saw this bunch of ragamuffins uh, the thing that I remembered most at the time, because I couldn't really make out the words, uh, was Spider, the whistle player, would bang his head luxuriously on a, on a beer tray <laughs> and make a really loud noise, which was part of his head crumbling, but that was show business. <laughs> uh, and there was this guy in the middle mumbling, yeah, Shane. Yeah. You'd look at him and you'd wonder, how the heck does this fellow write these absolutely extraordinary songs Mm. and he did it was a kind of a blessed miracle quite honestly and with a father from Dublin and a mammy from Tipperary he spent many summers in Ireland soaking up his Irishness as much as his Englishness and mixing trad and punk to create something entirely its own on the news at one Philip King many people um, in the tradition and myself included and others, when we heard the Pogues for the first time, said, my God, what is this? We had we had heard horse lips. We grew up in a world, I suppose, of Sean O'Reilly and the Clancy brothers. But the Dubliners probably were the nearest thing to the Pogues. And it was very natural when you actually got Ronnie Drew and um, Shane McGowan into a room together mm-hmm. to sing that really powerful version of the Irish Rover. He was a game changer, Brian. Mm-hmm. He was a change agent for Irish music. And it was his music with the Pogues, Rome Sodomy and the Lash and If I Should Fall, From Grace with God to Name But Two. Pure magic, embracing and subverting cliches of the Irish and in particular the London Irish experience. On Live Line on Thursday, memories from many who had lived in England in the 70s and 80s, the hardship, the prejudice, those for whom the music of the Pogues and Shane said so much. This is Michael. I went to London when I was only 16 years, and that wasn't yesterday. It was tough. When the troubles all started there, I got a terrible hiding. I was left in hospital because I was Irish. Good God. 
I have so much respect for Shane McGowan mm. and what he believed in. He was a proud, proud Irish man, oh, even was. though he yeah. spent years in London. To go to see one of his concerts or even just to stand in the background yeah. and do like punk rockers or whatever, he, he'd done his own thing and he, 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 he answered to nobody. He opened the doors for a lot of lonely, yeah. lonely Irish people in London who had nowhere to go, who were lonely, living in their flats, going home from a hard day's work, looking for a job, standing on the old Kent Road, hoping that a van would pull up yeah. and, um, and look for that a should few, be off yeah. the job. But if you listen to Shane McGowan and the songs and the words in his songs, it's a replica type because he's seen it with his own eyes to stand in front of him. And you know, like he was swaggering because he had a bottle in his hand or a pint. Mm-hmm. But to listen to the man, it was, you know, it was an eye opener. It was the best educational half 15 minutes that you could get from any professor in any university around the world. Just listen to Shane McGowan. And that was echoed on Arena by musician Lisa O'Neill. The people he wrote about it, wrote too as well, he wasn't writing for them. So he was writing, he had so much compassion and empathy for the underdog, you know. So Shane was writing about homeless people, about old people, uh, the hunger strikers, prostitutes, rent boys, people who didn't have a voice. And when this stuff is documented in songs, it lives on. And as a musician, he had many fans. Among them, Nick Cave, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan. And on yesterday's Live Line, Paul Simon, yes, Paul Simon, rang Joe to pay tribute to his friend. When you were in Dublin, you'd heard of Shane. Um, did you seek him out and say, I'd like to meet you? Yes. I already liked what I heard of him and I'd seen several interviews that he did, so I was prepared for, uh, you know, how, how he spoke, the rhythm of how he spoke and, uh, and how he looked, and was sort of prepared. Anyway, he was, you know, he was smoking and having a drink at the same time, and yeah. uh, and the tele, the telly was on, and right. no sound. Okay. Uh, I just sort of waited to see. Mm-hmm what the rhythm of our conversation was going to be. And then I just, I just followed it. I'm not even sure to what degree he knew, he knew my music. Well, yeah, he did. Cause ah. later he talked about it, but, but, uh, um, but anyway, I mean, the, the funny thing would be, I'd ask a question, you know, about something he said or his opinion about something. Mm-hmm. And he could sit there like, for a minute, yeah. you know, just kind of staring into space, you know. And then he would answer in the most lucid way and often quite insightful yeah. or funny. Once I got used to that, uh, then the exchange of information was always interesting, you know. And he played some he played some really interesting music for me, but it was a Dizzy Gillespie piece. Yeah. And then he played uh, some... Uh, Slam Stewart, you know, the bass player, the jazz mm-hmm. bass player, Slam Stewart. And he was playing it on this old, like, what we used to call Victrolas. I don't know what oh, you call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Rec- rec- you know, record know, players, Paul. An yeah. old, yes, this. An old record player. Yeah. Exactly. He was <laughs> playing these pieces on an old record player. And, and I said, is this how you listen to music? 
Mm-hmm. He said, yeah. And I, I said, oh, i, I got to get you some, some speakers. He did, and some good ones too. And here is a thank you letter Shane sent him. He has it framed. He wrote, thanks, Paul, for the friendly visit. It was great. And thanks for the lovely speaker. It has made a great difference to our listening pleasure. Hope to see you again soon. Your loving friend, Shane. Paul Simon on Liveline, and he was on for the full programme, so well worth a listen back. Oh, and by the way, he does a mean impression of the Shane McGowan laugh. Before he got his teeth. Yes. You know, he... <laughs> Yeah, that's good, that's good, yeah. And the influence and legacy of Shane McGowan can be heard in music played in venues, pubs, dance halls all around the country. Back to the news at one and Philip King. Any observer of what's happening with Irish music now, when you listen to Lancome, who are filling very, very large venues all over the world, and you listen to Lisa O'Neill, and you listen to the Mary Wallopers, and you listen to Ye Vagabonds, and you listen to what's happening to Irish music, none of it would be happening without the real, real influence of Shane McGowan. He was a sine qua non. He was the thing without which the music that we have today that we refer to as Irish music could not have happened. And so many tributes to the gifted, soulful songwriter, grit and romanticism in equal measure. A singer who could ever only be himself. And to finish, Lisa O'Neill on Arena, who read some of Shane's own lyrics. From his uh, lullaby of London, just in way of sending him off, may the wind that blows from haunted graves never bring you misery. May the angels bright watch you tonight and keep you while you sleep. in a bit. Welcome back. All week long, fallout from the riots in Dublin last week. Questions were asked as to the preparedness and reaction of the Gardaí to what had happened and how such incidents might be prevented in future. On Wednesday, Garda Commissioner Drew Harris appeared before the Oireachtas Justice Committee. The Garda Commissioner Drew Harris has said on Garda Síochána was seeking to acquire its own water cannon and that 200 tasers are to be issued to the Garda Public Order Unit, which is to be expanded. Appearing before the Oireachtas Justice Committee six days after the riots in Dublin city centre, Commissioner Harris also said all frontline Garda would be issued with defensive sprays. The Commissioner rejected calls from opposition parties for him to resign. And politically, very different views as to how last week should have been anticipated and policed. On Wednesday's drive time, Tempers Frayed, Labour's Aon O'Riordan and Fine Gael's Barry Ward went head to head. Very, very rarely do these things materialise as quickly as they did last week. You now have a situation where the Gardaí have committed huge resources to monitoring these groups. There will be a much closer eye kept on them, I suspect. And I don't think they will, be, they will allow a situation like this to happen again. A much closer I, eye kept on them, Aon. Is that, no, can I, can are I you just reassured say, by that as well? Let, let Aon back in. Well, I, I mean, I, I think any listener who thinks that water cannon is the answer um, 
will be, I think, have their face in their hands at the moment listening to this. Let's be clear. Last month, we almost had a, 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 a strike, effective strike from Angarda Shia Khan every Tuesday. So clearly, there is a massive morale problem within Angarda Shia. We have, Shia Khan, we have unprecedented numbers of resignations from the force. Unprecedented. And this is not being addressed. We have a minister who is failing to acknowledge at six o'clock on Thursday, she was telling the nation that Dublin City was safe, that outside of this, this instant, Dublin City was safe. Nobody believes that. And the reaction to that since then has been talking about dog units, horse units, a water cannon and facial recognition technology. Well, also, the all of this, but none today, of this, the use of pepper this, sprays, tasers, no, body cams from the middle of next and year. And what is actually being done, this is like after the fact. This is like when we have a riot. What actually is being done to prevent this from happening in the first place? So there's a number of failures of government. I, One, hang on a second. It's a failure. Just finish my sentence, thanks. There's a number of failures. One is the failure to tackle effectively the far right, not to recognise uh, the level of activity they have in terms of libraries, in terms of accommodation centres, and also at Dáil Éireann last month. And when Gar- Barry was quite happy to write to the Garda Commissioner then in terms of resources, but seems to think everything is fine now. Also, the failure of government to actually dispel the myths that have been propagated by these people haven't done it and have isolated the minister, rather go government, in, in that respect. And now we're in a situation where we have to have an after-the-fact response uh, from a beleaguered Garda, okay. uh, Garda okay. force who effectively almost kept to go on strike yeah, last Let Barry respond. Okay. Let Barry respond. Well, here he is. If the Gordie had dealt with the far right before Thursday, maybe Thursday wouldn't have well, happened. Well, I'd be very interested to know in due course what Aon thinks that they should have done to the far right. Should all these people have been locked up before that? The reality is that we know who they are and they are a very small number of people. Yes, they were successful in agitating people beyond their own ranks last Thursday. But Aon is looking at this with the wonderful benefit of hindsight. And he's now telling us after the fact. Do you know what? I'll finish the sentence this time, Aon, OK? Um, with the wonderful benefit of hindsight and now telling us the position positions are untenable, none of which helps the situation. What you well, have in fact... Did ask that. Senior yeah. members, well-known f- figures in the far right in Ireland were inciting hatred and nothing yeah. was done, they say, about it. No, but well, this, at the moment there is hate speech legislation going through the House of the Oireachtas for exactly this reason, opposed by many people within the Oireachtas um, and spoken against by, by, by people who, who think we shouldn't be putting that legislation in place. But what you do have is a minister who's on top of this, a commissioner okay. who has acknowledged the tactics need to be changed, acknowledged they're putting different systems in place and it's very unhelpful for people to be playing politics with this and okay, trying to score we'll points. No, 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 I, have I, I have to go I'm way over time. We'll definitely come back to this though. Uh, apologies to A on the rear. And what of the Justice Minister? With Claire on Thursday, this analysis from Pat Lee of the Irish Times. So how does Helen McEntee emerge at this stage in the week? You know, I think she's kind of bruised and battered but still standing. And uh, and that will continue to be the way, uh, I think, unless, as I say, there are further incidents on the street, which I think would remake the political situation for her. Uh, I think the general perception around Leinster House, certainly, and among some of the independent TDs who, who, who might support her or certainly wouldn't vote against her, is that the her initial response to it on Thursday night was somewhat hesitant, somewhat halting when she went on prime time and talked about, you know, that the issue wasn't uh, whether the streets are safe or not at a time when, you know, buses were burning on O'Connell Street and uh, and so forth. Um, and, and, and there is, I, and we saw some of this played out at the Justice committee yesterday when the Garda commissioner was questioned on it. There are questions about, you know, the speed of the response and uh, and so forth. 
but at the same time politicians are very you know very wary i think of taking out a justice minister as a result of uh, of, of what happened with all the implications that that would have mm-hmm. for the future but yesterday Sinn Féin called for a motion of no confidence in the minister for next week so not over yet and this week saw the start of COP28, world leaders meeting to slow global warming, saving the planet and its people, we hope. But the venue, well, doesn't exactly spark confidence. On Morning Ireland with Gavin, environmental correspondent George Lee. He's in Dubai. George, the hosts, the UAE, tell us more about them and why everyone is not happy at the choice of venue. Well, they're not happy at all because the UAE is one of the biggest oil and gas producers in the world and they have uh, a vested interest in the oil and gas industry. They're part of that whole industry which, is, which has made $5 trillion of profit last year alone and invests very little overall globally in renewable energy and certainly invests very little in the poorest and most vulnerable countries to climate change. People are very upset this time because the UAE uh, documents came out last week which show that they have briefing notes with regard to their uh, officials and the president of the COP here, uh, uh, Sultan Al-Jaber, uh, uh, explaining um, kind of issues to bring up in uh, to progress new um, oil and gas deals with foreign countries while they're here at the COP. And that seems like playing two sides of the coin. You know, how can you say that you're at this and championing this big negotiation to reduce uh, climate change and to reduce uh, greenhouse gases from fossil fuels while you're promoting new deals? So people are upset about that and that will be an issue here. And making headlines at COP, the Loss and Damage Fund, which aims to help the world's poorest and most vulnerable countries in combating the effects of our climate emergency. And on the opening day, money was pledged to a standing ovation from the delegates. Fine words to feel good, but was it enough? With Claire, Alex Thompson of Channel 4 News. Well, enough to save the world, no. Enough to save the countries most at risk from the global climate catastrophe still no i'm afraid um but you know let's let's it is a step forward and an important one usually at this stage frankly they're all, they're arguing about the agenda or who wants milk in their coffee at this stage of events so by cop standards this is a genuine delivery and it proves again that those who say these events don't achieve anything are, are definitely wrong that said the money on the table is absolutely paltry countries are putting in germany 100 million dollars United Arab Emirates also putting in the same. But this is the kind of money you might spend for a Premier League footballer. Um, I've just been speaking to Al Gore, former US vice president, who said this money would last about 32 minutes in terms of what's required. What's required is hundreds of billions of dollars every year. So, But yes, a start has been made on that one. A start at least. So what else will be discussed? Well, the other one really is trebling, trebling the amount of uh, renewables um, and wind and basically wind uh, and solar power that humanity uses by the end of the decade. Well, there's really good news here. Um, the word you talk to people here is that we will easily achieve trebling of that. Um, Brazil in recent years has, uh, has, for instance, increased her usage of wind and solar by five times. Why? Because it's cheaper. We've got alternatives. They're right there. This is old technology, solar and wind. It's right there. It's ready to go. It's getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Oil and gas is going in exactly the other way because it's getting scarcer and scarcer, amongst other things. Let's go do it. That's where the, you know, it's the old adage, follow the money. So, you know, 
Coal is, is dying on its feet, and, and obviously so. Oil and gas going the same way. All the money and future investments, so much of that is now careering into renewables that, in fact, uh, I have to say, good old-fashioned global capitalism is going to do the job just as well as the COP in terms of achieving that, uh, that increase. Mm -hmm. The other one, of course, phasing down or phasing out fossil fuels, way more difficult. Alex Thompson of Channel 4 News with Claire yesterday. Back in a bit. Welcome back. From here until the end of playback, sit back, relax and get ready for all the good news and happy bits of bobs that were on the radio this week. Because it's been a difficult and frankly grim time recently and it is easy to forget that there is good stuff too. First up, the cry of the curlew, we thought it was a goner. Back it is from the brink. 42 curlew chicks have fledged in the wild this year. That's almost double the previous year and the most since a national conservation programme was launched here in 2017. Well, Yahoo are the curlew equivalent of that. And with Brian, Dr Barry Donoghue of the National Parks and Wildlife Services. I think back in 2016, it was anticipated and uh, calculated that the curlew would go extinct from Ireland within uh, the decade uh, if there was no action taken. Um, so both uh, the Department of Agriculture and the National Parks and Wildlife Service have taken action. We've uh, put in place a curlew conservation programme for the last seven years and that has been shown to work uh, in saving off that uh, extinction, thankfully. And I think that's um, primarily down to the super teams that have been active in the areas where the curlew is still breeding, their curlew action teams. Uh, at the heart of this, the, the local communities and farmers and landowners, they've been very much part of this conservation effort, not, not apart from it. So what we're seeing is that people care about the curlew, have pride in the fact that they're one of the last few remaining areas where we can enjoy the beautiful bubbling call of the curlew in the summer mm -hmm. as part of Ireland. They don't want to see this iconic species lost uh, from Ireland. So it's very much a story about heart and hope. Up in Donegal, Stranoler, to be specific, TY superstars making videos for superstars. In this case, Ed Sheeran and his song, Magical. Edel Temple is a teacher at Finn Valley College in Donegal. She's a sneaky one, but for all the right reasons. Here she is with Samantha Library on Morning Ireland. Tell me how this happened. Morning. Um, it all happened just really on a luck of a chance. Um, I was at home one night on my house and I happened to be on Instagram and on Ed Sheeran's page he had up just saying that he had um, a competition for fans to make videos for um, his new album Autumn Variations and I thought oh well as soon as I thought of it I thought of the song Magical because it was my son and I's favourite song on his album and then I thought of the school and the magic that we create every day in the school and the students and um, I applied for it and oh sorry there was a school bell. <laughs> <laughs> no worries go ahead. And um, I applied for it and um, a few weeks later then I was shocked to see my email that Warner Music wanted me to come on for a Zoom and to explain more of why I wanted to do this for my school. But but when you came to actually film in this, you didn't tell the students that they'd been chosen, did no. you? Why? No, we, we didn't. We just wanted the really authentic um, expressions and it to be very natural between the students. And we felt like if we told them that they were making a music video for a sensation like Ed Sheeran, that it would take it away a bit and they'd be a bit nervous and everything. So we just told them it was a promotional video for the school. And then when we wrapped on the Friday, we brought them into a classroom and we told them then the wonderful news. How did they react? Um, I think it was stunned silence for a little while. And then it was just a typical teenager screams and everybody in disbelief. And then a few people were like, how did you keep that a secret from us? 
Now Ed Sheeran's in Ireland a lot. He was here at the weekend for Katie Taylor's fight. Do you expect him to drop by the school at any time? Well, that that would be magical, right? <laughs> but um, no, we're just really blessed at the minute to be picked and it's still a dream. I'm expecting my alarm to go off any minute now and it's all been a dream. Go Finn Valley College. Meanwhile, over on Lyric, <clears throat> start your singing now. All together now. And the gaffer's been on top of the world. Down on creation and the only explanation I can find is the love that I found ever since you've been around. Your love's put me on the top of the world. Off you go again, the gaffer. I'm on the top, top of the world. Looking down, down on creation and the only explanation I can find. That's the man. Is the love that I found ever since you've been around. Your love's put me on the top of the world. That'll be the gaffer. At the top of the world. Bye, <laughs> golly. And what about Mason? I'm on the top of the world. No, no, <laughs> That's Mason, who's three. There is one word in most everything I see. Not a cloud in the sky. Got the sun in my eyes. And I won't be surprised if it's a dream. I am tip of the world. You could just keep singing, couldn't you? But we won't. And on Liveline, one man's COVID hobby meant that a Garda got his bike back fished out of the Liffey it was, thanks to Richard. The bike went in the in the Liffey. How did you become involved, Richard? I'm just trying to TikTok, Joe, like everybody else, seeing what was happening around the city centre. So I had it in my head from that moment on that um, I'll have a look and see if I can spot it. And I did. I got it out that day. How did you get the it out? after the riot. How did you get it out? Um, my new, well, newish hobby I started there just before COVID was um, magnet fishing. Oh, brilliant! So I went down with me magnet and will I. You explain, will you explain? Will explain magnet fishing to people who don't understand? Is that your hobby? It's not your ordinary magnet. No, no, Jesus, no. Um, it would be <laughs> <laughs> scientifically, I believe, is an M five three. Okay. And um, different strengths of magnets for different objects. So if you want to pick up a coin, you get a smaller magnet. Okay. You and want then, to pick up a push bike, you get a stronger magnet. And would I get? Would the magnets be the size of a manhole cover? It'd be the weight of a bag of sugar, and it'd be half the size of a bag of sugar. And how did what what magnet did you use to get the bike out of the Liffey? I used what you call the barbarian. Um, ah, the barbarian. Yeah, very, very reliable. <laughs> a, bit, a bit of Celtic in there somewhere, I'm sure. But yeah, she's, she's, she'll pull out at least a quarter ton. Wow. So uh, it, was, it was easy enough for what the did, what did you, what, what, what state was the Garda bike in? Yeah, it was in Good Nick. It was in Good Nick. Oh, a power wash, a bit of oil. Bob's your uncle. <laughs> and come here, have you fished many bikes out of the Liffey, which are magnet um, in, in magnet fishing? 
In the last three years, I would say, yeah, maybe in and around 200, if not more. I did give them away or whatever, you know. Yeah, well done. Well done. Well done. Oh, and by the way, coins, loads of them. But this was his best find. Cannonballs. Yeah, I got a cannonball out of uh, Dolphins Band Air last year. A cannonball, no less. And with Claire, Evelyn sweating it out in a sauna and then plunged the verb of choice into icy water, all in Dublin city centre. Hot, cold, hot, cold again. Invigorating, if you're into that kind of thing, which apparently people are. That's fresh. Can I ask you why you're doing it? I've been craving this for the last few months. I really think Ireland is like the optimal place to get into a sauna practice because... Really? Well, it's such damn cold and it's miserable from now on and dark. Okay, well, it's Sunday morning. It's Sunday 10 morning. o'clock in the morning yeah. and you're here. Yeah, an opportunity to socialise with my beloved family and friends. Uh, yeah, no hangover. The optimal way to spend a Sunday. So you pop into the barrel as part of it into the cold water. That's no, what I haven't I'm done this bit yet. The women will tell you about that. Okay, so you're in the barrel. I am in the barrel. <laughs> you're sitting in the barrel on a Sunday morning. Yeah, freezing. <laughs> Why are you doing this? How do you feel right now? Freezing. <laughs> I suppose it's probably good for your health. <laughs> feel like it right now. And Why are you here this morning? I am here because I was dragged along, but it's <laughs> lovely. <laughs> This is the most ridiculous interview I've ever done. You're sitting in a barrel with cold water up to your neck. But you're not screaming or anything, you're fine. No, I'm used to getting into the sea, so this is nice. It's a nice alternative because it's cleaner as well. And you're going to hop into here in the sauna? Yeah. You love that? Love it, yeah. But you've been in a sauna before? Yeah. I think it's really good for clearing the head. Good for your skin, apparently. Good for the skin. It better be. We'll find out now. So did you take much persuasion to get up on a Sunday to do this? No, we love it. It's become a non-negotiable now, every single week. Once a week, we do, we'll do and it. how do you feel after it? Unbelievable. You just feel so energised, but really relaxed at the same time. Really happy. Sick puppies. And for those trying to escape the cold, the miracle of migration and the arrival here of Brent geese and their journey is quite extraordinary. And it turns out they've had a good year. Here's Eric Dempsey on Mooney Goes Wild. When they, they arrive first, um, they, they will feed on the coastal, the eelgrass, which you know is found along the coastal marshes and the, the coastal wetlands. But the Brent geese is quite successful at the moment. It, the, the numbers are rising. And I, I've just been looking at, at Brent this morning. And it's wonderful to see so many young birds back with the adults. So the adults will bring the young birds back, show them the ropes, show them where to go for, for feeding. It's so that when they return, they know where to go. Last winter, there was hardly any young birds around, hardly any in with the flocks. This year, it looks like they've had a very good breeding season, and we can tell the young ones in that they have pale bars uh, on their, their wing coverts. It's like pale barring on their backs, so you can tell an adult instantly from a young bird. So it looks like they've had a very good breeding season. And when you think about it, these are truly wild geese that have flown the Atlantic Ocean, that have bred in Arctic Canada, and here they are feeding on football pitches, on greens, and on the coastal grasses along our coasts. It's, it's quite an extraordinary thing to witness. It is all so lovely. And on Monday's News at One, Booker winner Paul Lynch rosettes, cups, medals and more for his book Prophet Song, because the Booker is a really big deal was described by the judges as astonishing and soul-shattering. Paul Lynch is on the line now from London. A very good afternoon to you, Paul, and, and congratulations on your win. Thank you, Brian. It's all very strange. That's all I can say. I feel like I've entered into a counterfactual present time, some sort of 
sliding door reality. Um, it's 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 quite something. You were, I think, the the bookie's favourite, uh, but I suppose that that still doesn't uh, lessen that that moment when your when your name is read out. Well, the bookie's favourite is usually a curse. Actually, um, generally, the bookie's favourite almost never wins. So I, I, I was as soon as they said that you're the bookie's favourite, I thought, well, damn it, I'm definitely not going to win now. And when I was in the room last night, I, I, I felt pretty certain that I wasn't going to win. Um, that's so I was, I was taken aback. But give yourself a pat on the back, Paul. And if you live in Scaries, reach around and do the same. Go on. Because this week, a renowned British anthropologist named it the best town in the world in which to live. Joe Humphreys of the Irish Times brought Cormac the research on just what makes a good small town. One of the things he says is that like people basically wear the same clothes, around with the same clothes, but no one dresses to intimidate or show demonstrable wealth or showing off. In fact, there's a kind of almost a dressing down uh, element. I mean, I think one thing that, that is worth saying, he talks about the inclusivity in the town. And I think this goes across um, a lot of towns in Ireland, particularly dealing with migration. He interviews a lot of migrants in the town and talks about how integrated people are in English language classes, in schools, uh, in GA clubs and sports clubs, which I, I think is a good message this week. Um, and, and a lot of just general supports within the community in terms of tackling loneliness. And comparable to the UK, he, he's, he, he observes there are cultural differences in Ireland mm-hmm. that um, really help the community and help community spirit. Um, I mean, another thing you found comparable to the, to the UK was the, the lack of nostalgia in Ireland. People generally weren't looking back, saying how great things were in the past. My God, yeah, he, I mean, one he of wasn't things on he said, a sing-song in Ireland any time recently, was he? <laughs> well, I, I, think, I think when he was comparing it to maybe some, some of the over-nostalgic um, feelings in the UK around the Brexit vote and kind of thinking everything yeah. was better. I mean, one, thing, one point he makes was that uh, it, the, the loss of faith or the, the declining influence of the church, uh, he says, was profoundly inconsequential to people lives in terms of how they live their lives that really they've developed their own values in the community they've turned to kind of find meaning elsewhere in sports clubs in community involvement in environmental projects and so on okay. and so, in their family life just involving family and friends so and he's the, given and this really, town Cooan uh, and you, you say it's Scarries are a ringing endorsement is there anywhere better than Scarries to live in Ireland Five Oh, it's on also on Christmas, it's December 2nd and Backhurst has finally circulated the bauble memo. Sinead Newlechon was released. She's on tinsel inspection. Well, it'd have to be lights, it'd have to be. They are what really brings out the glimmer, the shine of all them decorations. Like, without them, all the tinsel, everything, it just wouldn't shine. Yeah, the tree definitely, that really, like, represents, you know, starting Christmas. How do you decorate your tree? I have to put the tree all together... And I pick like a special, like significant thing for myself. So probably like a little candy cane and uh, maybe a few reindeers and a few snowflakes as well. My Christmas tree is all white. Yeah. And what's on top, a star or an angel? A star, because they're all superstars. Oh, and at this stage, you really need to watch your teeth. It's all getting too sweet. And on drive time, Chef Ashling Larkin. Can you um, freeze desserts? And I'll t- tell you why I'm asking. Last night, because it was a Wednesday, I had a generous proportion of Toblerone cheesecake with a side Ooh. of ice cream topped with nice. little bits of strawberry. I thought you were off sweets. And I sa- sweets <laughs> not desserts. <so. laughs> He's cheating, I said, Sarah. He's cheating. <laughs> That's what he is. Could you, could you um, freeze something like that, I wonder? 
Yeah, you know what? Cheesecake is one of the ones that freezes beautifully. Aww. Like a trifle, you cannot freeze. Um, but cheesecake, you can. I have a beautiful white chocolate stem ginger cheesecake oh. that is beautiful. Yeah, make it in advance and put it in the freezer. They freeze brilliantly, like really, really well. So cheesecake is definitely one you can freeze. Pavlovas, you can't. Meringues, you can't really. They're too delicate. Like you technically can freeze them, but they'll come out battered and bruised. So I wouldn't bother with that. But cheesecake is definitely one you can freeze. Obviously, mince pies, mince meat, um, apple tarts, anything like that freeze really well. You freeze them, can you? My God, you are absolutely uh, a genius. Do you want to come around to our house and, and on Christmas Day, maybe do a little bit of prep and you can head off to your own house then? I'm not going to joke with you, Cormac. That is one of the deep. The, the, that is one of the most often things I am offered in this life. Is will I go and cook Christmas dinner for somebody else? I thought you were going to say um, that is one of the what? worst invitations I've ever had. No, but she is, that sure. too. That <laughs> too. Definitely not. She is one of the all-time greats. But there was one small note of discord. There's going to be a debate, as there is every year, about artificial or real. Well, that's always real, Ray. Well. You know, I will go toe to toe with anyone who says it's it's artificial. Well, I've saved so much money. <laughs> I've an artificial there for about See, ten I knew, years. I knew, I knew you did. I uh, had a suspicion. <laughs> I don't, you can depend on it. You can depend on it. And for those people who say it's not good for the environment, over ten years actually it works out seemingly that it's better for the environment. Yeah, the longer you have the product, I mean, yes, the, yes. the worst thing you could do now is buy the plastic yes. tree. But if you have the plastic plastic tree now, it's not doing any further damage to the environment. Yes. So you're probably on. I'll give you. I'll give you that point. But what, but where's the joy? You don't get to sweep up any pine needles. I know. You don't you, get the smell of the tree. You don't have those lovely weevils that come back alive and fly all over. You don't your have to worry room. about how to get rid of the damn thing <laughs> yeah. on the sixth of January. Uh, no, I mean, you're missing all that crack. All that. Yeah, yeah. You're looking at the king of the circular economy here. That's me. <laughs> No, they're calling it. The that, circular. That's circular economy. That's yeah, the buzzword yeah. of the year. And that, folks, for this week anyway, is the only row we're going to be having. The only hard questions is your tinsel sparkly enough. And that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.